0: Good morning! How are you? I'm. I'm thanks for asking. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. That's pretty cool about the 100% uh, percent vote of affirmation. Uh, I've been doing this a long, long time. I have never seen 100% vote of affirmation. So, we, we view that as a, a good God thing. So, uh, we're excited. I, I, I heard, I think, the Reich, Reichs will get here sometime in June. Uh, but he, we're gonna, he's not going to jump in and start preaching. His commissioning service is tentatively scheduled for August 1st, and then he'll jump in. We want to give him space to settle in and all that good stuff too. So, um, I told the uh, first service, which was pretty crowded, uh, that I'm, I'm surprised that anybody showed up today. It's such a nice day out there. I, I thought you'd want to be out. It looks like it's 90 degrees already, so maybe some of you just don't have air conditioning over here just to stay cool. Maybe that's it. But I did want to say that uh, we're committed to staying uh, at two services through the summer. For years, Community Covenant went to one service in the summer. But there's two reasons why we want to keep the second service uh, going through the summer. One, is that the, the people who volunteer with Community Kids have a service to go to uh, on that same Sunday. And, and second of all, we want to provide people with options. And so, um, we, we recognize it will get a little thin throughout the summer, but we're committed to, to hanging in there with that. So, welcome online, welcome, glad you're here. Uh, we're, uh, we're nearing the end of this I Am series from the Gospel of John where Jesus has been revealing himself as the voice, the person who spoke to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses was called by God uh, to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, uh, he's a shepherd, um, and he encounters this burning bush, if you haven't read the story, and then God calls him to lead, and and Moses says to the burning bush to... Uh, who shall I tell them sent me to lead you? When the Jewish people ask, you know, why you? And God replies, I am who I am. And then God said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus is repeating these I am statements, which if you think about it, if you know much about the New Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees were probably not really happy you know, with these series of, of statements. Uh, but what we're, what we're seeing in here is that these I Am statements are, are not just random thoughts that come to mind, but the I Am statements in John's gospel, Jesus is telling His listeners that not only is He God, that's a big part, but He's also saying that He is the embodiment of the different aspects and symbols of Israel's history. And so, let's walk through some of the previous I Ams, and I'll kind of try and connect for you what Jesus is, is saying to the people. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, John 6, what He's saying is, I am the true manna from heaven. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, John 8, what He's saying is, I am the pillar of fire that provides light and guidance in the dark. And when Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep in John 10, what he's saying is the Passover door that when sprinkled with the blood of the lamb spares the firstborn son. He says, I am that door. And then when he says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, what he's saying is I know my flock intimately. And that's an important um, perspective for us to own, that he knows every member of his flock intimately. He knows you better than you know yourself. And then uh, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life in John 11, what he's saying is whoever believes in me will never die. And then when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, he's saying that he is the Messiah of God in the flesh. And then today, we're going to be in John 15, I am the true vine. And it's interesting, the literal translation of that passage, that phrase, is, I am the vine, the true. I am the vine, the true. And it has really significant theological um, implications that we don't have time to go into today, but maybe I'll give you a little bit of that. And what he's saying, when I am the vine, the true, he is the one in whom we must abide if we are to bear lasting fruit. That's what he's saying here. We'll unpack that a bit. And let me just say that at the end of this series, we want to have a baptism. So, we've scheduled a baptism for two weeks from today. And we want to encourage you, the staff and the elders want to encourage you, if you have not been baptized, that this is a great time to be baptized. And I would go another step and say, if you were baptized as a baby, we think it would be very wise and even appropriate for you to be baptized on your own accord to be baptized because you believe, you want to say that I am now a follower of Christ, not as a baby, but as an adult, or at least an emerging adult. Uh, So, I leave that with you. If you have not been baptized, this is a great opportunity to do that. So, before I read the text, I want us to consider some context today. Jesus' public ministry is now finished and chapters 13 through 17 are called, in theological circles, the farewell discourse. And 13 is about the Last Supper, and so sometimes it's, it's 14 through 17. 14, 15, 16, and 17 is the farewell discourse where Jesus is just talking to the 11 disciples who will become apostles. Uh, Judas walked out in John 13, the Last Supper. And so, this farewell discourse is Jesus talking uh, privately to his followers, his key followers. Uh, With his death and resurrection on the horizon, Jesus uses the farewell discourse to explain what is to come and that he must go, which was obviously a surprise to them. I I think it should bring us comfort that the whole time, you know, Jesus was with these disciples for three years… And they still didn't understand what was going on, right? They still didn't get it. They still thought up until the time of the crucifixion and maybe even after that Jesus was going to, send a, to set up a geopolitical kingdom. They had no idea that what he was coming to do was to, to, is to set up a spiritual kingdom. And so all through his ministry, he was saying these things, he was sharing, he was talking, he was teaching, and they never got it. They never got it. In fact, we don't really see them get it until after the resurrection when they spent that time in the upper room leading to Pentecost. And then at Pentecost, during that time, those 10 days, uh, they see all the, 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 um, the dots seem to get connected for them, and they burst out as the church uh, launched. Um, and so, I just find it comforting that they, you know, Jesus is with them physically, talking to them, teaching them, and they didn't get it, so that brings me comfort that I still… there's still a lot I don't get, and I readily admit that. Uh, I I, I, I still want to know. I still want the eyes of my heart to be further enlightened, to know what is the hope of His calling in me. So, for them, the penny hasn't dropped, the dots haven't been connected, but He's still at it. And what's interesting is there's a gap. At the end of chapter 14, and the beginning of 15. The last sentence of chapter 14, John 14, says this. It's 1431. It says, Get up, Jesus is saying, Get up, let's go from here. So they're in this upper room, or the room they had the last supper in. They think it's the same upper room as um, Acts. Uh, and so they start walking. And the upper room there is in the southwest corner of the old city. And um, Garden of Gethsemane, where they're headed, is just kind of northeast of the old city of Jerusalem. So it's about a mile walk, and I've had the opportunity to go on that walk. We don't know exactly you know, what route they took. Uh, I have something I'll share, that I, what I think happened. But they have to go by the temple, and then they have to cross the Kidron Valley, which is not a deep valley, it's more like a wash. And then they go over into the Mount of Olives, and then the Garden of Gethsemane. I think Gethsemane means olive press, um, that's where they go. It's at kind of the base of the Mount of Olives. Uh, and so that's where they're headed, and that's what's going on. I think it's an interesting uh, a thought of what's go- As they leave and as they're walking towards Gethsemane, what's going on? Because Jesus is speaking this farewell discourse to them. And so they left the place of the Last Supper. They didn't cross into the Garden of Gethsemane until after Jesus had completed His final discourse that includes chapters 15, 16, and then his long priestly prayer in in John 17, that all happened before they get to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. So, here's the question. Uh, Where did they go? How did they get there? And where did Jesus speak these words in John 15 about him being the vine, the true? And I have an option, a possibility for you. Uh, Jesus took them from the upper room. Again, southwest corner, you've got to go by the temple to get to Gethsemane. And uh, time of Passover, so the gates of the temple would have remained open all night. And on the gate of the temple is the emblem, the national emblem of Israel. And guess what that is? That would be a golden vine. That's the national emblem of Israel on the gate of the temple. And so it's possible, I would say probable, but I don't have to to be right. It's possible that Jesus stopped there and spoke John 15 to His disciples. And then they began to make their way to Gethsemane. Whatever walking route they took, Jesus is saying something really monumental here in John 15. Here's what he's saying in a nutshell. He's saying that from now on, the decisive characteristic for membership among God's people is to abide. To abide in the life and the love of Jesus. Israel thought that they were the true vine, the people set apart. Israel thought they were the vine. That's why they had the national symbol. But what Jesus is saying To Israel, to all of us, really, you're not divine. I am. And again, the theological implications of that are huge. What Jesus is saying here, we'll read in a moment, is that he's starting a new race of people that will be gathered out of every ethnic tribe and tongue from the whole world. And they will become, we will become the new Israel. That's what he's saying. Saying to Israel, you're not divine, I am. And I'm starting something fresh tonight. Paul understood this in Galatians 6.16. Paul said, those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So Paul understood that. The newly constituted people of God The identifying mark is no longer circumcision of the flesh. The identifying mark for the newly forming people of God is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. That's the newly identifying mark. And the characteristic is that they will abide in Him. So that kind of changes everything. You can read more about uh, circumcision of the heart in Romans chapter 2. So with that backdrop, I'd like to read the first 17 verses of John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser." Great illustration. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Notice a number of times he says abide. I think it's 10 times. Uh, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, which I think is like the key sentence in the whole passage. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then he goes on to talk about what that commandment is. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that some, someone lay down his life for his friends. so that you will love one another. Pray with me. Lord, we welcome you into this place. We open our hearts, lives to you afresh. We are open for your instruction, uh, your care, your affirmation, your rebuke, wherever it's necessary. And so we ask that you would inhabit this time, that you be the primary teacher, and we give this time to you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus in this farewell discourse, He's talking about a a change in His relationship with the disciples. Uh, The vine and branch metaphors is a perfect illustration to describe the new relationship that He's going to have with the disciples, the new relationship that He has, or the relationship that He has with us. We would be grafted together by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus would be in us, and we would be in Him. Jesus is saying, I'll still be available, I'll still be accessible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, granted, they didn't get it, they didn't understand that. We have a better perspective of that in our time now, but to see that He is available. And it's actually much better for us that He's available by the Spirit instead of if He was here physically with us. More people have access. He still knows us intimately. Uh, He's saying, I'll still be there. So as we we move towards celebrating uh, the the Lord's Supper here today at the conclusion of the sermon, I'd like for us to consider four overlapping thoughts on what it means to abide in Christ. Anytime you read a passage, uh, that repeats a word over and over and over again, again, 10 times in the first 10 verses of chapter 15, and if you go through 17, it's, it's uh, 11 times. So, that's, that needs to catch our attention when we see a word repeated over and over and over again. So, it behooves us then to consider what it means to abide. Uh, on the one hand, it's fairly easy to understand. On the other hand, there's some nuance to what that means. So, let's take a look at that Again, with four overlapping thoughts of what it means to abide in Christ. Number one, the essential meaning of our active abiding is an act of believing and receiving and trusting in all that God has done for us in Christ or through Christ. Believing and receiving are two sides of the same coin. They happen simultaneously at our conversion. If a branch remains or abides attached to the vine in such a way that it is receiving all that the vine has to offer, that's a picture of what John means, what Jesus means by abiding. Are we positioned to receive all that God has for us? Paul understood this in Romans 11, verses 17 and 18, He changes the metaphor to an olive tree, but it's the same concept, the same idea. Here's what Paul says. You, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. It's important, I think, to acknowledge that abiding requires no effort. It it took effort for you to come here this morning, and if you're online, it took effort for you to get up from wherever you were to get to the couch or wherever you're watching from. It takes effort to get here. It takes effort to leave, but it doesn't take any effort at all to be here, that right now you're abiding in this room. You don't have to keep saying to yourself, I'm abiding, I'm abiding, I'm abiding, I'm abiding, I'm abiding. No, you just are. And so, part of what abiding means is that we relax into the gospel. We relax into what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We don't have to work something up. We don't have to keep repeating that to ourselves. Abiding is believing and trusting and savoring and resting and receiving what Christ has done. Number two. Jesus gets very specific about what is flowing between the vine and the branches. He mentions words, His love, His joy. John 15, 7 says, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's a confounding confounding verse for some of us because we have a history, most of us, of asking for things that we didn't get. And so, how does that work? I'll share with you my thoughts in a moment. John 15, 9 says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And again, I think that abide in my love is the key passage. And then John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So, abiding in the vine means regarding our prayer life and the consternation maybe we have felt when we prayed something and didn't get it and thought, you know, uh, that, that maybe we should or we wonder why we didn't, what's wrong with me, all those things kind of flash through our soul, right? So, our prayer life, as we abide in Christ, our prayer life is being transformed from praying what we want to what God wants. The idea that when, as we abide, we begin to get a, a, a different perspective or a new perspective of what's in God's heart. And so instead of just specifically what, praying for what we want, we begin to pray for what God wants, that abiding gives us a different perspective on our lives and the lives that we live and the people in our lives. And so as we abide, we begin to pray more for his will than for our own. And so that's helped me to grapple with the idea that I didn't ever get everything I always prayed for. A positioning ourselves to receive and to walk in God's love. That's what abiding does. And this, this reminds me of probably one of my favorite quotes of all time: a guy named Tim Keller, a pastor, theologian, author. This is what he says. He says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Guess what? It's worse than you thought. And then he goes on to say, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So as Christians, we live in this tension, right? We live in this tension There's there's humility, and there's boldness, too. There's humility because we know we're sinners. That keeps us humble, as it it should. But then there's a boldness that begins to build in our hearts and in our soul because we know we are loved. And that's most churchgoers, most Christians, most churches need more instruction on the fact that we are loved. That, that to penetrate our soul and to see that, yes, He really does love me more than I ever imagined. I, I don't even understand the kind of love He has for me. Most people need more instruction in that than the idea that, that the heart is wicked and deceitful. So We've tried to emphasize that here. Abiding in Jesus will grow a joy also from the inside out. It can be real and present even in the darkest of circumstances. Happiness is from the outside in, but biblical joy is from the inside out. It starts with abiding, seeing His perspective, learning from Him, understanding His words, and then that joy settles in, and it builds from the inside out. And then number three, excuse me. Nothing of any spiritual or eternal significance is possible apart from abiding in the true vine or the vine, the true. John says in fifteen five, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And I like to separate that word into two words. Apart from me, apart from him, we can do no thing. And that's not saying that anything, you know, that you do during the day. What it's talking about is is things that have eternal significance. You can't do anything that will have eternal significance apart from abiding in Christ. I've run across a lot of churchgoers in my time that had head knowledge, maybe been in church their whole lives. They have a a lot of head knowledge of the gospel and theology and church and stuff, but they don't have heart knowledge. In other words, it hasn't traveled from the head to the heart. And you've probably heard it said, like I have, that some people miss heaven by about 18 inches, and that's the distance from here to here. And so it's not enough to have head knowledge. There needs to be something that travels down into the heart and comes alive, that sees the beauty and the wonder the majesty of the gospel, and embraces it and takes it for its own. That's what's being talked about here. In fact, you know what I'd say? Um, Some of the most miserable people in the world are churchgoers who don't have heart knowledge of God because they have in their head, they have all the stuff, the rules, whatever they're thinking of it as. They have it all in their head, but they don't experience it so they're miserable, but they keep coming week after week after week. And so I invite you to open your heart afresh to Jesus. And finally, number four, as we move towards communion together, the overarching goal of us abiding in the vine is the glory of God. John 15, 8 says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." The whole purpose of this, of not being the vine, being utterly dependent branches grafted into the vine, is to give God glory. That's why we're doing this. What does it mean to bring God glory? Simply put, it means to enhance God's reputation. That's why we're here, to enhance God's reputation. And I I think we have a ways to go. All the events of the last year and a half or so, uh, I have not been absolutely impressed with the Capital C Church, some things that I've seen that have discouraged me. But this is what we are called to, to, to enhance the reputation of God by our hearts and by our actions, our love for one another, our love for the lost and broken people in our lives. That's what we're called to. And then Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, he talks about glory too and what it means to glorify God. And simply put, he says, to glorify is not only to praise and enjoy, but to defer to and to serve. So, out of that, wanting to bring glory to God, we begin to defer to one another, to God, and we begin to serve. He says this is the opposite of self-centeredness, the desire to bring glory to God. We would do well to remember also that the Father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. He's shaping our lives through seasons of trimming and pruning. I've noticed some of you carry from time to time that, I've been pruned, look, as you're walking in, or I'm being pruned, you know, that you can kind of tell. And that's another reason why we need each other. We need to walk with people because we're all going to get trimmed, we're all going to get pruned, and it's not going to feel good, and we're wondering what's happened, and that's when we need each other the most. When you're being pruned, I want to walk beside you. When, you when, when I'm being pruned, I need people to walk beside me as well. Sometimes it's painful. Our invitation is, is to receive the rest, to trust, to savor, to relax into the vine, the true. So as we move to communion, make sure. I always struggle with opening these. Am I the only one that struggles with these? Yeah i got to get it all ready, but we're moving into communion now. So if you're at home, grab some elements. If you need to go back, there's some elements on the back table. Um, For our communion meditation, I don't really want to move too far away from what we've been talking about. I want us to go back and what we've learned in the series and go back to John 13. As I mentioned, it's the Lord's Supper. And if you're familiar with that passage, you know Jesus takes off his cloak, puts a loincloth on, and begins to go and wash the disciples' feet. You remember that? And then he gets to Peter. You probably remember that too. And Peter initially refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. And then you'll remember probably what Jesus said. If if I do not wash you, Jesus says, you have no part of me. And then Peter, he says... uh, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And I want to say to you, these are not arbitrary descriptors that are coming out of Peter's mouth. I think there's something really important here. We can learn something about what it means to abide from Peter's words. So, Peter's asking for clean feet. He's asking for clean hands and a clean head. What could that possibly mean to us? Here's three questions to consider. I want us to take a little, some moments of silence here as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. I want you to ask yourself, and I'm going to ask myself, are my feet clean? What does that mean? Does, Does my walk reflect the abiding presence of Jesus Christ in my life? Here's another question. Are my hands clean? Does what I put my hands to reflect the abiding presence of Jesus Christ in my life? And a third question, is my head clean? Does what I think about, dream about, reflect the abiding presence of Jesus Christ in my life? Now, there's no doubt that all of us fall short in all three of those areas. There's no doubt about that. But let's just take a few moments, and be quiet before the Lord, and just ask Him if there's anything that He would want to point out. Uh, if you're aware of some ongoing sin or some sin in your life that you think that the Lord would have you to repent of, you can do that too, so that our heart is clean and ready to receive the elements as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's be quiet for just a few moments.